The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. And um, therefore, we're one of the first uh, publications of the replications of Lovas's study from 1987. And then also you had Svein program in Norway, which also had secured funding in the 1990s. And um, Mila Dickens program out in Modesto, California had secured funding. And... Um, and then actually two programs in Modesto, because of the advocacy of parents there, um, had secured funding. Jane Howard's program also there. Um, so those were the, the first early publications of high-quality intensive early intervention um, as a result of the NIMH study that was funding research into whether anybody could replicate what Lovas had published in 1987. Right. Yeah, I I love that we're having this conversation because there's there's some weaving to do about the history of ABA and the definition of outcomes for ABA and what Lovas set off to do and then as we have become uh, more informed with our data and information the concept of what an optimal outcome for an individual with autism might be. And, you know, Lovas's study sort of highlighted the, this, this false dichotomy of the differences between uh, an optimal outcome being 53% uh, of those individuals being indistinguishable from their peers, right, after uh, X number of uh, hours per week for an average of three to five years in early intervention, you know, that was one way of looking at what ABA as a treatment could do for individuals who were diagnosed with autism. But that was 50 years ago, 60 years ago at this point, right? And so now we're thinking about outcomes differently and understanding neurodiversity different, differently and are changing the way that we are thinking about ABA as a treatment differently. Uh, and so, you know, the reason I wanted to get up at five o'clock in the morning and, and talk about sleep issues is because every single parent that I have ever interviewed when they come into a clinic, into one of my clinics, beyond can you get him to communicate better? and I say him because statistically it was more boys than girls, beyond can you get him to communicate better, the next three questions they always asked were, can you get him to eat more foods, more than five foods, whatever it was, can you toilet train him, and can you get him to sleep better, right? And so those three issues, uh, eat, sleep, and potty, I called them ESP issues, uh, turned out to be the, the biggest three quality of life 
issues for most individuals, most families coming to me for early intervention and even into school age and beyond uh, of what optimal outcomes might look like for individuals who might be impacted by autism. What, what, what's been your experience with, with those, those three issues, eat, sleep, and potty? Yeah, I love that that's what you're focused in on because um, I always think about that as um, the self-care realm being the, the realm that when you're talking to new uh, graduate students in ABA, that doesn't seem sexy. That's what, you know, what we want to do is the psychodynamic person-to-person -person treatment and have the big breakthrough like in ordinary, the movie Ordinary People and do all the that, that really feel like real psychology or behavior analysis. But the nuts and bolts for most families is self-care. And that's, that's what they're faced with. That's what they're doing all day long with their children with, without relief. And uh, a lot of what we do when we're providing a comprehensive program is giving the parents a bit of a break from those constant demands. Amen. I mean, yeah, it, it, it's, it's so basic to all of us, right? <laughs> what you eat, how you sleep, and your ability to uh, process uh, the, the foods and whatnot that you eat. So eat, sleep, and potty is just basic to all of our own self-care. It's, it's sort of a, a monument to how we're going to be able to establish the groundwork to move forward in the world, period. But, I mean, I should preface all this talk about sleep um, by first saying that one of the tenets of our science and our treatments and our care in the autism space is to only select goals that are pertinent to the families or to the individuals themselves. So if sleep is not an issue for you or for your family, then this, this podcast or this talk or talk about changing these things is, is uh, not directed towards you. But for the multitude of families who are impacted by sleep disruption, um, I, I want to talk about all the different ways that sleep can be interwoven with autism symptoms and the, the symptom burden, uh, if you will, of that diagnosis uh, for individuals and families. So first of all, there, there are issues between um, sleep disorders and sleep behavior. So tell me a little bit about your understanding of those things, Eric. Well, you were just addressing it so well. It's some people are sleeping according to whatever schedule they prefer. They're very pleased with their lives and um, they don't need help from a professional. Uh, but um, more than half of the kids that we work with, that is a major complaint of the parents. And we're talking about early intervention. So the, the best way to keep um, ABA positive is to do early intervention rather than to wait until adolescence. And now what are you going to do to help um, a child that's got an entrenched pattern of an entrenched disordered pattern of sleep? And, and I might go off a little bit on that. The, 
so often we're seeing children in adolescence and, and young adults who have incredibly dysfunctional sleep patterns. And this, this has nothing actually to do with autism. We encounter children who are up all night playing video games. And those patterns develop slowly over a period of 10 years to the point where parents take for granted I'm going to be zonked out and my kid's going to be up all night. And yeah. while they're going to school, the, the problem is kind of masked because school copes with kids that can't pay attention, that are groggy, that are ornery because they've been up all night and now somebody's had to drag them out of bed and get them on the bus and they're in school and maybe they're even dozing. But mm -hmm. school can accommodate any challenge you might have. But now what's going to happen when that child goes off? And, I, and again, I'm not even talking about autism yet. That child now goes off to college or goes off to independent work, social life. And they're still used to being up all night and sleeping during the day. What are they able to get a job? and hold, keep that job? Are they able to get to classes and learn from their college experience? Or are they really just so used to uh, being up all night that their pattern of life is very different from the majority of their peers? And oh, yeah. about autism, there's this obvious, more persistent, perseverative pattern of behavior that's really hard to break. Whereas for you and I, it was ridiculously easy to learn to just get to bed on time, which I'm saying with a big smile. <laughs> yeah, that, that has not been the case in my entire life. Yeah. Yeah. But I, that's interesting point with like, we haven't even got to autism yet because at some point, um, I think over 20 years ago at a workshop, I went to an ABAI in Atlanta, I went to a, a workshop about sleep and, and autism, and uh, the gentleman whose name is escaping me right now, uh, fact that there is a diagnostic crossover between individuals who are diagnosed with ADHD and those who are just sleep deprived in children, because they are behaving hyperactively in order to keep their brain and their nervous system regulated based on the lack of sleep you know and and i've i've seen that uh in my observations of children in general you know it, it, the the kids that have not had their naps on time right typically developing neurotypical children toddlers etc they haven't had their naps on time and you see them getting more and more wound up right and just impulsive and grabbing all the things in their environment because they're not on their correct sleeping schedule, right? So if, if we extrapolate that to individuals who, whose numerology might be different even further, what is that going to do to their behavior, right? So yeah, I, I think statistically it's, it's somewhere between, and this is a wide berth, but uh, somewhere between 44 and 89% of individuals on the autism spectrum have some type of sleep disturbance. And so there is, again, the difference between a, a sleep disorder and a sleep behavioral issue 
is can't sleep versus won't sleep, right? So you've got disorders that go into parasomnias, uh, sleepwalking, uh, night terrors. Um, what else? What else am I missing here, Eric? There's there's other types of sleep disorders that I can't think of that are a, a legitimate medical diagnosis versus a behavioral issue. And so it's important that we parse out as we talk about these sleep issues that you get a medical rule out first before anything is actually addressed behaviorally so that you're actually treating uh, the correct symptom or issue that's going on in the household. Right. Yeah, but tell it, hallmark of ABA treatment is to look at whether there's something biological that should be addressed first. Um, I think, unfortunately, though, what you're, the huge, vast majority of folks are going to encounter medically is uh, medication treatment, which is not actually recommended by the perfect medical professional associations. In fact, it's counter-recommended um, because drug treatment is only a temporary stop gap for treatment before children habituate to the therapeutic doses. Yeah, and what, what are some of the medications that you see prescribed or even sometimes not even prescribed, just used? Well, you, you know, your normal pediatrician, and frequently people are, are going to talk about, um, and I'm even blanking out the term, it's more of an herb than it is a drug. Uh, um, melatonin? Yeah, melatonin, thank you. Yeah, yep. And, uh, and then people will um, recommend just basic, uh, and uh, pediatricians might recommend that you just try a basic antihistamine that uh, has a depressant effect on all of us. And then you've got your real sedatives, which again, parents who are desperate, um, and when you were trying to think of different um, psychiatric labels for sleep disorders. You know, some parents are desperate for relief just because they're having real behavioral issues with a child's sleep. So twice in the past uh, 10 years, a major complaint brought to us from a family was, my child's fixated on stuffing the toilet and flushing the toilet. And we've literally had to replace our ceiling because our upstairs bathroom flooded and we were asleep <laughs> and wake up in the morning and you need a new ceiling. Um, so the things, the problems children get into, we all know about how challenging it is to come up with a lock for your house that your four-year-old child can't figure out how to defeat. And then they're out bolting and the neighbors are finding your child uh, sleeping on their doorstep in the morning. Um, yep. These are these are regular complaints that parents bring to us, and the the safety of a young child that doesn't have self preservation skills is a major issue in autism. Yeah. yeah. Yes, I mean, so many parents uh, I've worked with throughout the years, um, they have children that are either difficult to get to sleep or to stay asleep. So there's uh, sleep onset and then there's sleep maintenance. 
two different types of disturbances within just regular sleep behavioral issues, um, not even talking about disorders. And, you know, a lot of families end up co-sleeping, uh, which there's absolutely nothing wrong with, unless it is no longer preferable to the family, right? Um, so I, I There, the school, there's no longer guaranteed special education funding. The child's now 22. He's on his own or he's living with you as you get older and more feeble um, as we all go into our senior years. And at some point, you're just wondering who's going to be taking care of my child. And there's no good answer for that. So the that's not... Sometimes uh, we're spending way too much time raising the specter of super challenges in the future. If you don't pay me now for treatment, then you're gonna be paying me later for serious round the clock, 24 hour residential care. And that's not true for every person. It's not true by any means, but many of the families that I'm working with can see down the road into the future that I've got to deal with this now and not later. So when we talk about non-compliance, long big circle back to what you started with here, the it's non-compliant in the sense of you're not reckoning because you're a kid, you're not reckoning what you're going to need to survive in the future and you sure can't understand your parents' anxiety over your future, but you would rather be playing video games. You'd rather be eating yet another uh, bowl of cream of tomato soup. And uh, <laughs> that's rather... very specific. <laughs> and that's, that's, that's what seems like a great life to me. I've got my cream of tomato soup and I've got my Mario game and that's all I need in life. That, that uh, rear end thermometer. And uh, that's the, um, a child, you can say, okay, it's non-compliance and the child's got a right to assent to his own life um, choices, but he's not capable of, the child that I want to be working with is not capable of deciding what's a positive life course I need to be following for my own safety and quality of life as an adult. And the parents um, are not, by and large, it's kind of funny that we're worried about compassionate care and assent in the field today because parents have always been giving kids uh, compassionate accommodation for the kids' uh, challenges. And it's pretty much normally, as we implement anything in the realm of compliance, it's pretty much normally we have higher standards for what a parent needs to be as far as parenting their child than the parents themselves have. They're much more able to just give the child a pass. They're worried about their child's future. But for right now, yeah, he loves this video game. So, and grandma's buying him the fourth and fifth variation of the Mario video games. 
because she's all of us are giving our child what they want because what else would a parent do their parents are not trying to torture their child or deprive their child they want if they want to make their kids happy and it's into mario so he's got a room full of mario and um we talk start talking about yeah but where's the future going and often the parents are already standing up for assent as a basis of treatment instead of having to be introduced to this novel concept yeah, absolutely and and i i want to point out too just for the listeners like we're, we're talking about the families that have the ability to send their child to a school that is going to be able to deal with their sleep deprived behavior and that is a level of privilege on its own uh there are so many families that don't have what is terribly understated as a luxury uh, with the public school education that they might be able to access. Um, you know, I, I'm friends with groups that work with uh, individuals who are no longer being served in the public school um, because of behavioral issues related to their autism or other diagnoses. And so, again, just the, the level of stress that sleep disorders and the impact that it has on human beings is just incredible. Um, I think I used to know particular statistics around what sleep deprivation does, in, in, in even in terms of major disasters, like Chernobyl, uh, the Exxon Valdez, the Challenger explosion. I'm dating myself here as a Gen Xer by listing all these, but but all of those had sleep deprivation as a point of uh, impact to what actually led up to all those disasters. And so again, if you extrapolate that to just everyday people trying to drive their cars <laughs> to get to work, you know, the number of traffic accidents that happen as a result of sleep deprivation, the impact of, and I hate this word, productivity uh at your job um it's all impacted by sleep right and, and whether you're able to be kind to your partner in your household right uh whether you are able to tolerate humanity in your workplace all impacted by sleep um so yeah it's it's just i think i've been proselytizing about this a lot with the different talks that I've been invited to do lately and talking about quality of life and outcomes and what goals should be in ABA. And if a parent comes into you, into your office and says, uh, you know, my, my eight year old is still not completely toilet trained and uh, we can't get him to sleep through the night and we can't go out to a restaurant anymore. And you say, okay, let's let's do this assessment over here. Let's do the ABLES or let's do the VB map. And it's got nothing to do with the three things that that parent just told you was going on in their household that is affecting their quality of life. We need to course correct here. Um, very much so there could be criteria-based objectives related to getting to those goals. 
uh, within those different assessment or criteria-based assessment um, tools, but you've got to make sure that your medically necessary goals are directly related to this socially valid quality of life issue that this parent just came in and talked to you about. And, and how is it related to that person's actual diagnosis of autism and their, their symptom impact uh, so that you could tie the whole thing together. And medical necessity is also a, another buzz term in our industry right now because it's a very uh, complicated construct to try to um, to try to reach uh, in terms of being in compliance with different funding sources that you may be accessing in order to provide care, right? What what are what are some of your shortcuts for making sure that these sleep goals are actually tied to medically necessary care and your work? Well, as as you're alluding to, this the parents are aware uh, that that's an issue in their lives, but they may not recognize that this is a bona fide treatment goal. And in fact, that you know, over the years of developing secure funding streams for the families to get medically necessary treatment, uh, it's always been a battle even just to get the substantial numbers of hours necessary to really turn the corner with a child. And literally uh, 20 years ago, I remember that was a major issue of the prior authorization uh, reviewers that we had in Minnesota was they didn't think that we should work on a sleep schedule. Literally, uh, in the, the denial for coverage, one of the reasons for the denial was we don't think children should have a goal of sleeping 10 hours a day. So that's why, again, in, in the handout that I put together, all these different sources of medical professionals specifying, yeah, kids at that age, 10 hours a day of sleep is what's the recommended schedule, what's normal and natural. And this child who's up all night, um, that's an aberrant uh, behavior pattern, and it's going to cause them trouble. The, uh, what we want to do is make sure that we're able to deliver the regular throughout the week programming and evening programming to really help those parents get their child back to what they need. Um, so... The parents are aware that they have a sleep problem, but are they really thinking, oh, I'm going to have these therapists come in the evening and run the sleep program with us? They, neither the funders, nor often our uh, young colleagues, nor uh, the families are thinking that it's even something to be addressed until someone like you yeah. can play it for them. Yeah, I mean... There's uh, operational challenges around addressing sleep issues because so many of our provider groups are a brick and mortar that operates between 8 and 6 p.m., right? Um, and so there's, there is the logistical challenge of trying to help families actually address sleep issues in vivo in their households at nighttime, um, and that may not be... Uh, 
of reality or realistic uh, operational uh, goal for some providers or provider groups. I think that there's an opportunity uh, to have this conversation about how ABA might be able to shift some of that treatment focus, especially given the, the open doors with telehealth practices and how we might be able to be in the, the living room or the bedroom um, to coach families through some of the sleep challenges um, using uh, technology moving forward. So uh, beyond just the, 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 the practice methods that we can employ in day-to-day and in daytime. I think uh, there's a conversation we can have about some innovation around providing those types of supports through technology. Um, I think that would be really helpful to a lot of folks because, yeah, I mean, I I have struggled with sleep issues all my life, right? And when you are tired and as the time you are supposed to go to sleep approaches, there's a level of desperation <laughs> that I think sort of falls on you um, as the as the, the night gets darker that I think it would be hugely helpful for a lot of families, especially single parents raising children, to have that bug in the ear of a professional that is able to say, okay, just take a pause, you know, just slow down. Here's what's happening. Here's what we're going to do. Um, I think that would be a a great way to to support people moving forward. Well, Um, when we're talking about training a sleep program, we're, we're pretty much for any child that's going to be presenting a challenge to us, we're pretty much designing an hour long nighttime routine to gradually move the child into uh, readiness to go to bed and stay in bed and and actually fall asleep. So, so you're starting off way ahead of bedtime. To us, bedtime's an hour earlier of we need to make sure we've already interrupted the overactive schedule of the child gotten the other self-care needs out of the way, um, started uh, relaxing activities, and all this is training the child to to follow a a daily schedule that they're not used to following. So it's a lot of pre-training work, just establishing that hour of, of calming down and getting ready for bed, and then following through with a child that's that's going to have trouble with it, following through with an intensive schedule of reinforcement for staying in their bed for the next hour until they finally fall asleep out of boredom. So it's a two-hour routine, an hour ahead and an hour after, and I'm just using the word hour loosely here, which requires a lot of coaching for parents because for parents it's it's really a self-control skill. and for parents that have three other kids and, and a dog that got to go walk, um, <laughs> who's going to win this battle of competing interests and having, as, as you said, in the modern world of telehealth, having the ability to prompt them through directly through the schedule and provide social reinforcement for sticking with the schedule is super helpful. Um, and it used to be, and even my handout, I say 
okay, time for a pizza party, and we're coming over. We're staff, our staff, going back to the 1990s, well, we're residential staff. We're used to being up all night providing services to our clients. So it's not a big ask for our BTs to go have a pizza party until midnight with a family um, because they're used to working overnight shifts. Uh, but today, we don't really have staff that are expecting to work in the evenings. But telehealth is an easy uh, compromise there. Interestingly, as I allude to challenges with funding, now we're in a phase where with a public health emergency going away, everybody's talking about whether they'll keep funding telehealth. And so, okay, well, take the modern tool out of our toolbox and then still expect us to provide effective care to children. Yeah, I, that would be a disaster, I think, to to take that away because that's innovation, right? Like we have started to iterate what care looks like using that new modern tool. Um, and if you take that away, it disrupts so much continuity of care um, that that would be disastrous for a lot of families, right? Especially families in rural settings that were finally able to access care uh, that they weren't able to do so based on geography in the first place. So yeah, I, I I will definitely be joining you and and advocating for making sure that that does not go away, um, and and helping to keep funding in place for for organizations like the the Lovas Institute and, and other groups across the country that are are trying to provide that continuity of care. Right, um, it, it's important to individuals in general to have continuity of care. It is arguably even more important for individuals on the autism spectrum who desire a level of sameness <laughs> that things don't get interrupted uh, needlessly. So uh, yeah, big important topic there. Um, I do want to mention for anybody that's listening, Eric has provided me with some handouts and information from the Lovas Institute and uh, his own personal work. Uh, that I will find a way to share um, with Autism Live, uh, and, and hopefully it'll be on a website so that folks can download and access that information going forward. Um, so I, I put something in the private chat here, but I don't think that I have a way to actually drop something in the public chat that I'm aware of um, regarding just the website spectrumnews.org um, has uh, a nice uh, overview of sleep problems and autism explained uh, that I think is really helpful. Uh, that just gives some basic statistics about uh, the intersection of autism, neurodiversity, and sleep, and why individuals with autism might have uh, issues with sleep. You know, it's I think it says something, 80% uh, of autistic preschoolers have disrupted sleep of some sort. Um, it takes them an average of 11 minutes longer than typical people to fall asleep. You know, so just basic statistics that might help you understand what's going on and why do individuals with autism have difficulty sleeping? It, it, it's not just they have autism, which is so often the answer from 
less educated pediatricians, et cetera. Everything gets explained under this umbrella of, oh, it's because they have autism. Uh, it might actually have more to do with additional diagnoses that are known or unknown to the child and the family that could include gastrointestinal issues, right? Could include uh, ADHD is often a comorbid diagnosis with individuals on the autism spectrum and anxiety, right? Um, I think my neurodivergent, um, less profoundly affected individuals on the autism spectrum are fantastic overthinkers. <laughs> um, and so left to your own devices alone in a dark room, the ability to think yourself into a rabbit hole and keep yourself overstimulated by that thinking is a, a superpower <laughs> of some sort. And so, yeah, there, there's a multitude of reasons that your person with autism might have sleep difficulties, uh, sensory uh, issues with, with autism are common overlaps, right? So you could have a light sensitivity that is making it difficult for you to shut off your brain and go to sleep. Um, whatever noise is going on in the next room could be enough to keep the chatter going and keep your brain going. Um, what is that perfume the person in the next room has going on could be enough to keep the brain going, right? So considering all those sensory sensitivities could be an issue. And so, again, even for people without autism, there are sleep hygiene recommendations out there that talk about the optimal temperature to keep a room. And again, this is privileged thinking. Uh, not everybody can do all these things. But uh, there are, you know, I think 67 degrees is sort of the, the optimal temperature. Um, having some kind of white noise that will mask other non-repetitive noise outside the room would be helpful. Uh, having blackout curtains uh, is helpful for people with light sensitivity. Um, but again, to your point, having a solid routine that is a signal to everybody in the household, sleep is coming, sleep is impending, here comes the SD of sleep. That is going to be part of that sleep hygiene routine that will really help individuals have a better shot at a good night's routine or a good night's sleep, listen to me, sleep deprivation. Um, anyway, going into the household. I don't know if there's any messages from the audience, uh, thoughts, dedications, requests. Are, are you, have we put you back to sleep? I don't know if anybody's listening. Eric, do you have additional thoughts there? Well, and while, while you're looking to see if there is any questions, the, um, the relaxation response itself is a skill that you can acquire. So whether I'm talking to you as a client or to a parent of a young child or to that person, struggling in college, you can learn to relax and you can intentionally initiate relaxation. And when you're up at night worried about everything you need to do, you haven't been doing all semester, um, you can initiate your relaxation response and then all of a sudden find yourself waking up in the morning because you're so successful at it. And it's, it's not a trick. It's not something that's pie in the sky. It's 
it's an easy skill to learn because all you're doing is practicing lying there and doing nothing and having a mental device that interferes with all the aberrant thoughts that are causing your anxiety. But that's, you know, it's been a hallmark of cognitive behavior therapy for 50 years. And um, it's very effective if you get the therapeutic support to uh, learn it and follow through with it. Yeah, it conjures up one of my catchphrases, which is behavior analysts heal thyself, right? <laughs> it's, uh, it, is, it is something that is uh, in literature, right? Uh, there is a tried and true method uh, based on CBT that um, we can all try to employ. Um, I know the, the military has used that technique uh, to teach soldiers to be able to sleep in unimaginable circumstances, right? Um, so, yeah, uh, more more on that next time we all get together at the crack of dawn to talk about sleep issues. Uh, we do have a question here. All right. It says, how do we help the adult who doesn't want to be helped? What can I, as a mom, do to set them up for a good night's sleep? All right. Boy, we've, we've, we've sort of been talking about this. Uh, Eric's really hit on this a lot because um, unlike previous generations, the, the level of access to dopamine providing screens is at an all-time high, right? And so whereas my parents were lucky enough to be able to say you can't have a phone in your room and there's only one TV in the house and it's downstairs and not in your bedroom, now we have children, adolescents, and adults, all who have screens available to them at all times, everywhere. Eric, you wanna, you wanna hit that refrain one more time before we run out of space? Well, working with adults, it's, it's really where the issue of assent is a major part of the therapeutic approach. So it's not just a, an ethical issue, but it's, I need to work mutually with this adult to have a common set of goals. And if I can, without knowing anything about the challenges you might be facing the, the person that's uh, written into us, um, we would be sitting down and identifying what are your adult person's needs in life and desires and implement an ascent-based intervention that they, they're eager to go along with because you're really nailing their own personal motivations. And uh, we can learn to practice, as I was saying a second ago, we can learn to practice relaxation. It's not, it's not this horrible, painful activity. It doesn't require a lot of effort to just lie there. And if we're strategic about um, meeting the person where they are in life, we can we can develop a relaxation skill that they can they can embrace and get so good at that they can follow through with the proper cues um, in the middle of the night. Yeah, um, caller in. Uh, I would just tell you talk with you about potentially drafting a behavioral contract between you and the adult and this sort of a quid pro quo if you do this for me i'll do this for you i think that's a, a good way to get buy-in from both parties 
Um, I want to thank Eric uh, for joining me so early this morning and talking about sleep. And I want to thank Autism Live for having us both take over for this hour for the podcast-a-thon. Um, again, uh, you can look both Eric and I up on social media. We're not hard to find. Uh, would love to continue to engage with any of you about uh, sleep and quality of life. And uh, I hope this, uh, this podcast, podcast helps get you to sleep. And uh, I think I'll look here on the private chat and see if we're about to be shifted into the new uh, hour of podcast-a-thon. Um, I'm Mandy Ralston, and uh, I hope you were able to uh, enjoy the next hour. Uh, I think we have a total of 16, 18 more hours of the podcast is ongoing. I'm not sure, but um, so much good information here. Uh, really, really uh, impressed by what Shannon, Penrod, and, and Traven have put together here. So thank you all.